Are you listening? And welcome into another episode of the Damn Podcast here on the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network, powered by BeaverBlitz.com. I'm your host, Carter Baines, flying solo today as Angie Machado is on spring break, uh, getting ready to head out on vacation. Just like the Oregon State football team, taking another uh, week-long break here, the second of two weeks in the middle of spring camp. So in this downtime, coming on here and get. Just going to run through a bunch of questions, uh, fielding questions from Twitter, from the lodge of beaverblitz.com. Going to start off with an update of the Beaver Blitz official March Madness group. Talk some Oregon State baseball. Uh, The Beavers getting a series win against California at Goss Stadium over the weekend. And then we'll dive into the questions for the rest of the episode. talk a little bit about some of the other Oregon State sports that are going on Uh, at the end of the episode. Probably not going to go a full hour today. Uh, It's a little difficult to to stretch a a solo podcast into an hour. So uh, we'll kind of use the same format that we've used for some of the emergency pods and and mailbags in the past where uh, we aim for a half hour, but we'll probably go somewhere over or under. Uh, Before we get rolling, just want to remind everybody uh, about this 30% off first year deal that we have at beaverblitz.com. You can take 30% off your first annual subscription. Again, this is for new members only. That comes out to $6.27 a month. Uh, So if you want more content in addition to the damn podcast, go ahead and take advantage of that. You won't regret it. want to thank everybody who is watching us live on YouTube right now. Uh, Also a shout out to everybody listening on the podcast side. Uh, Thanks for doing so. If you are watching live on YouTube and you have questions you want to throw in here, go ahead and do that. And I'll, I'll add those to the end or, or, or take them live when we get to the mailbag portion of the episode. Again, that's going to be in the second half, but fire away uh, right now, later, whenever you want, I'll throw them up on the screen and we'll get to those as well. Uh, but I want to start off with an update on the Beaver Blitz official group uh, at CBS Sports Men's Bracket Games. March Madness entering the final four this week. Uh, we have a, what, a five-day layoff now with no basketball, so have to figure out what to do with my life with no basketball on for the next few days, but um, that's how the tournament works. We had a very exciting Elite Eight uh, on Saturday and Sunday, and then, of course, the upsets in the Sweet 16. You get the first Elite Eight with no one seeds. We're going into a final four with no one, two, or three seeds, it's pretty incredible stuff. Uh, that's that's the beauty of March Madness. It can be agonizing for some, exciting for others, um, but certainly no no shortage of storylines as we enter the final four on Saturday. So the uh, the Beaver Bullets official group again over <clears throat> excuse me at CBS Sports. We had twenty six brackets entered, uh, and as we stand here with just three games remaining, uh, it's me in the lead. I. <laughs> going to use this as an opportunity to to, to brag a little bit. Uh, that's kind of the reason I've been highlighting the standings uh, over the last two episodes. But yeah, I'm, I'm checking in at first right now. Then uh, we'll take you through the rest of the top five. Chad Booth, 
with 63 points, two points behind me at 65. Uh, Everett Miller in third at 57. Everett was in the lead when we uh, last spoke last Monday. Ron McCoy at 56 points checks in at number four. Ron is actually the only person um, to have a bracket with a team remaining. He has UConn going to the national championship game. So congrats to Ron for being the last man standing, so to speak. Uh, and then in a tie for fifth, Adam Nassett and Jermaine Gray with 53 points. So as we kind of wind down in the tournament here, uh, we're, you know, you'll take a look at the scenarios, who can win, uh, who's, you know, in the running, who has the most possible points and whatnot. Only two brackets can win. It's myself and Ron McCoy. Um, shout out to Ron. I don't know if he listens to the podcast. I've gotten to know Ron at, at Oregon State basketball games. I'm sure, Ron, if you're listening, I'll look for you at Goss at some point this season, but it's been a been a, been a minute since uh, we've run into each other at a game, but congrats, Ron. I know you know your basketball. Great pick, picking UConn uh, to make the run to the championship game. I had them going to the final four, but bowing out to Houston, obviously that's not going to happen, um, but congrats to you, Ron, on, uh, on having the most possible points, but that means this pool is going to be determined in the final four. Uh, it doesn't matter what happens in the championship game. It comes down to Miami and UConn. If Miami wins, I take the pool. If UConn wins, Ron takes the pool. So high stakes in this final four matchup between the Hurricanes and the Huskies. Uh, there's no prize for the winner of this pool. If I win, I'm going to need to have a chat with Angie, uh, maybe get a, a retroactive prize going because... Uh, <laughs> It's not easy. It's not easy to to build a bracket that uh, that is a contender in one of these pools. Uh, Angie, by the way, checking in in a tie for 23rd of the uh, 26 brackets we have entered. So uh, she, I think she was middle of the pack last time we uh, we checked in, coming in at, at 23rd right now. So uh, Ron, if you're listening, best of luck to you. But I'm I'm going to be pulling for for Miami this weekend. There's there's no way around it. Uh, it's it's you and me, Ron. Okay, we move on to Oregon State baseball now. Beavers getting a series win over California in Corvallis this weekend. It was a cold, wet, windy series. Uh, pretty typical Oregon baseball weather until really May or June. Uh, this is now two years in a row where we've had cold weather, snow, rain, uh, just uh, horrific baseball conditions. Uh, at, at the midway point of the season last year, I, I don't even think I wore shorts in a, in a you know, I think I was in a, a, a coat or a long sleeve shirt or something um, at every game last year. And it's kind of trending in that direction this year as well. I, I don't know if that was the reason Oregon State's offense struggled. I tend to believe that there are other issues going on with it, and it's uh, it's not just a factor, or it's it's not just a product of the weather being awful. Uh, but Oregon State's offense did struggle in this series. The Beavers won the opener five to three, needed the comeback effort midway through the game to uh, to take control of that. Lost Saturday two to one, and then came back on Sunday and won two to one. So. Uh, you know, you're looking at at three runs in the final two games for the Oregon State baseball team there against a team uh, in, in California that entered the weekend in a tie with Oregon State for last in the Pac-12 standing. So obviously an opponent that you would hope to score a bunch of runs against, 
pitching did exactly what you would expect against an offense like that. Uh, but uh, the Beavers bats not waking up quite yet. Uh, obviously, as you enter now the, the middle third of Pac-12 play, you hope you, you see some of that as the competition level ramps back up. Uh, highlighting Sunday's win, I was I was down there in Corvallis Saturday and Sunday. Uh, it was a 1-1 game entering the ninth. Very little offense to speak of outside of the fact that the teams combined to, to strand 25 runners. So they got the guys on base, they just couldn't bring them in. Uh, but most of that, frankly, was, was just a product of really poor pitching on both sides. A uh, lot of walks, a lot of hit batters. Um, an, an interesting series in which you had by my count, just about every umpire being yelled at by every coach at some point in the series. Uh, you had countless reviews. It was a series in which uh, there was a lot of everything except for scoring. Uh, and, and that was certainly the case on Sunday. It was a long game over three hours. Uh, but regardless, 1-1 entering the ninth. Oregon State puts runners on the corners and Travis Bazana scores on a walk-off wild pitch. So Oregon State's runs... Uh, on on Sunday, coming basically just solely on the hands of of California errors. So again, uh, just not a whole lot of consistent offense from the Beavers there uh, throughout the series, and certainly not on Sunday, even though they got the win. Um, there was some talk on Saturday after the loss about the team needing to have more fun. We spoke with Garrett Forrester, Mitch Canham after the Saturday loss, and and that was the takeaway was that. They were searching for for confidence, for fun. Um, they said that the team went bowling before the series to, to kind of loosen up a little bit. It's a team that's playing really tight. And, you know, obviously that, that happens when you struggle offensively. Uh, players like Gavin Turley going through just immense slumps. Um, but the fact that, uh, that they have struggled offensively for, for an extended stretch of time now, uh, they're playing tight. Um, they, they were looking to have more fun. And I think that winning in walk-off fashion, celebrating after that, uh, celebrating after that, Travis Bazana throwing his, his helmet up in the air in celebration. You know, I think maybe you can, you can use that to, to build some momentum. Uh, that's obviously a lot more fun than losing two to one to the team that is now in last place in the pack 12. So, um, I don't know if it's as simple as one game goes your way, you know, you win in walk-off fashion, everything's fixed. It's probably not that simple, um, but I think they can use that um, to to build off of, for sure. Speaking of building off of performances, Gavin Turley, as I mentioned, going through this, just this meteoric slump, um, just, you know, strikeouts after strikeouts, not seeing pitches, um, eventually had to be pulled from the starting lineup. And again, this is your freshman phenom. This is a guy who turned down MLB to to come to Oregon State. Had a great start to the season and then just hasn't been able to do anything over the last couple of weeks. He has two hits in two days to finish the series, which I, I, I think, you know, that could be a sign of him breaking through a little bit. Uh, the adjustment to Pac-12 play often hits freshmen harder than than your veterans who have been there before. Um, so I'm curious if if that was was part of the uh, part of the rationale or part of the reason for for his his slump. But um, to come in and pinch hit on Saturday, struck out in his first plate appearance, but then got a big hit uh, in a ninth inning rally, and then on Sunday 
uh, knocking a, another hit. Uh, maybe you start to see him turn things around a little bit. Got back in the starting lineup on Sunday. Three freshmen in the outfield in the starting lineup for Oregon State on Sunday. Can't remember the last time we saw that happen. And certainly a stark contrast from last year where you've got multiple All-Pac-12, All-American type players uh, who are in their third, fourth years in the program there in the outfield. Um, but Oregon State does get the series win. With it, it moves actually out of the the last place in, in Pac-12 to a tied for seventh. Uh, a lot of those teams in the bottom half of the Pac-12 lost over the weekend. So Oregon State moves up to a tie for seventh. It's right behind Oregon. One and a half games back, Oregon uh, coming off a non-conference series has only played six games in Pac-12 play. Oregon State nine, three and six for the Beavers, three and three for the Ducks. Um, so that's that's kind of where your top and bottom half of the Pac-12 stand right now. There's there's kind of that break between Oregon State and Oregon. Um, three games difference in the loss column there. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and answer some questions in the mailbag. Um, if you're watching on on YouTube, obviously, you know, we don't run the ads here, but we'll pause real quick for ads on the audio side. Okay, we want to start with the questions that come from the lodge at beaverblitz.com. Again, 30% off your first year at Beaver Blitz if you are a new member. It's $6.27 a month. A month. Uh, you get priority for these mailbag episodes if you leave your question in the lodge. We'll start with, uh, let's go chronologically as far as when these questions came in. So we'll start with questions that came in yesterday and with the ones that ruled in this morning. And we start with what in the blue hell OSU who asks about the transfer portal. So uh, the question here, the next football transfer portal opens in 20 days. Positional need, uh, positional needs predi predictions, anything you're hearing about guys who already entered. Do you think any of the needs have changed from what you've seen in spring camp? Going to highlight that second part of the question more. Um, there's just not a whole lot of chatter about the transfer portal right now because as the question mentions, we're still three weeks out from it opening again. Um, so most of the guys who are in the portal um, have already found a, a landing place or are probably not going to at this point because uh, it has been a couple of months now since that first portal window. Um, but as far as Oregon State's needs in the transfer portal, I think, you know, entering spring camp, we talked a lot about Oregon State needing help in the secondary uh, just to, to to shore up the depth a little bit. I don't think that's as much of a concern now because we've seen Tyrese Ivey step in and look like a guy who is at the very least going to going to contribute and, and quite possibly going to start. Uh, he's going to be in that competition for sure. Uh, one of the standouts of the first two weeks of spring camp without a doubt is Tyrese Ivey, the junior college transfer who just landed in Corvallis this winter. Uh, but Oregon State actually picked up another junior college commitment yesterday on Sunday in Drake Vickers, a corner from Pasadena City College. Uh, committed on Sunday, like I said, you know, I, I don't know if he's a guy who's going to, to contribute right away. I believe he has three or four years of eligibility, so a younger player. Um, but I think somebody who who helps the depth long term maybe can, you know, maybe can compete in fall camp. We'll see. Um, didn't have any other offers other than Oregon State. No rating at 24-7 sports, so I don't have a good scouting report on 
on Drake Vickers, but certainly adds to the depth there. Um, so I think, you know, your, your corner depth is, is a little better than it was entering camp. Um, safeties, I think will be fine, especially if Alton Julian returns to, to full strength, which it looks like he's still on pace to do. Um, so I think, you know, with that position mostly taken care of now, you could still look for a, a transfer to come in there, but it's not as much of a need. The other position that we highlighted too uh, was the wide receiver position. And that's another example of, I think, what we've seen in spring camp so far, maybe suggesting that Oregon State will be fine there. I think the fact that you've got four incoming freshmen at the position, three who are there now and only one who's healthy in Zachary Card, um, I think at least one of them will be on the two deep in the fall. And, and Zachary Card certainly looks the part of somebody uh, who's going to play right away. His his speed, his playmaking ability, the fact that he could play special teams and offense. Uh, he's been one of the standouts of spring camp so far. So I think you see him on the two deep without a doubt. Uh, but then Montreal Hatton, Taz Reddicks, those are two guys that we are very high on uh, on the recruiting side. And who I think, once they're healthy, will probably be in the mix as well. Uh, Hatton, for sure, one of Oregon State's top signees in this class, um, I, I think lines up to, to be a contributor. So if you get at least Card, but probably Card and Hatton or Reddix in the lineup, there's probably not as much of a need for a transfer there. Uh, so it's interesting, the two positions that we were talking about needing help, maybe they don't need as much help now based off of what we've seen. Again, it's it's only two weeks of camp. We'll see how they look in April, uh, but that's where we stand right now. Uh, Matt Chiafoni asks kind of a fun question. Who lasts longer at Oregon State, Jonathan Smith, Scott Ruick, or Mitch Canham? Um, an interesting question in that, obviously, we're projecting future success, coach longevity. It's impossible to predict, but extremely thought-provoking. So let's Let's go through this. I, I'm going to say Mitch Canham will be at Oregon State the longest of these three. Uh, Scott Ruick is is the oldest, and I put that in air quotes because he's in his early 50s, so like he could coach for 25 more years. Um, but I, I think he's the one who is the closest to there being real questions about the state of the program. Uh, obviously, he has completely rebuilt the women's basketball program, taken it to, to extreme heights, deep tournament runs, um, elite recruiting, but it's struggled the last couple of years. You know, the transfer portal has not been kind to the women's basketball program. Uh, it's coming off its worst season in what, 10 to 12 years. Um, so if those struggles continue, theoretically, that would be the program where you see a coaching change the soonest. Um, so for that reason, I, I don't know that I can say Ruick is, is the, uh, the, um, the coach of these three that has the, the best long-term outlook. Um, I do think that obviously, you know, he's, he knows how to win and I think can get things turned around pretty quickly, um, but we have to see it. So Jonathan Smith being the, the next there on that list for me, I, I think Smith is the, no, I'm not saying he's going to leave for, uh, a new job right away, but I, I think he has the highest level of poachability. Um, football success, more volatile too. So, you know, who's to say Oregon State doesn't take a step back in two years? That happens. You know, you see programs um, kind of ebb and flow. 
I think Jonathan Smith has the program in a great spot right now. And I certainly don't think they're going to take a step back, but um, you know, would it be at all surprising given this program's history, if they miss a bowl game in two years, absolutely not. Um, So again, you know, I, I think football results are volatile. I think you see coaches poached more in that sport than in others. Um, and coaching for coaching changes, frankly, are just more frequent because of all of that. Um, so I, you know, if, if you're saying is Jonathan Smith here in 25 years, like the odds of that are so much lower than a Scott Ruick or a Mitch Canna being here just based off of how coaching in that sport works alone. Um, and then so kind of by default, I guess, Mitch Canham is, is my pick to, to last the longest or at, at Oregon State of those three. Um, but I think he's a solid pick just in that he has a great program in a good place right now. Obviously, it's a rebuilding year, but he was a win away from Omaha last year in, in year two and a half, basically. Um, I, I think he has an extremely long leash in terms of if you have a couple of down years, I don't think he's going to be on a very hot seat. In that case, you know, you probably give him another year or two to turn it around. Um, and and honestly, in college baseball right now, if you look outside of the SEC, there are very few jobs that are better than Oregon State. The, the tradition and um, the ability to recruit and the brand. It is hard to find a program more attractive than Oregon State right now, not... That, that's not part of the SEC. You know, the SEC can give you the money, can give you the facilities, but Oregon State has better tradition than most SEC schools right now too. So uh, I just don't see him leaving for a quote-unquote better job. Uh, and then also with regards to MLB, he basically turned that down already. I mean, he was on a fast track to being an MLB coach, uh, rising very quickly through the Seattle Mariners organization. So I think it's unlikely, unlikely that he goes that route too because – he already basically turned it down. Uh, next question from the Lodge of Beaver Blitz comes from JRU. Uh, and this has to do with roster management and scholarships. So uh, JRU asks, I want to know what happens if the Beavers are still over the scholarship limit when fall camp starts. I keep getting the quote, enough will leave by then answer. And that's not what I'm asking. I really want to know what would happen because I know they can't pull kids scholarships. So you're kind of right. You can't technically pull scholarships, but you do have options. So this is, um, it, it's interesting in that not all scholarships are multi-year guarantees. So when a guy commits and signs to a school, he's not necessarily signing on for a four-year scholarship. A lot of these are annual. Some of them are two to three-year guarantees. They're almost always renewed. You know, very, very seldom do you see coaches not renew somebody's scholarship. It's very rare. Uh, it's a great way to lose trust <laughs> with recruits is if you're just saying, okay, well, this guy comes in for a year. He didn't play. We don't like his long-term outlook. So boom, you don't have a scholarship next year. Like you can kind of pull scholarships in, in that way. Um, it would take a lot of back and forth conversation with the student athlete and a lot of understanding on both sides for that to ever work out. So that's why you don't really see it, but you could go that route if you had to. Um, medical exemptions are also another way to work around this. A lot more common. Um, anytime you hear of somebody medically retiring, that's what this refers to. Think Thomas Tyner at Oregon. 
uh, basically just allows the student athlete to receive financial aid while freeing up one of the program scholarships. So oftentimes you see an athletic scholarship kind of translate into an academic scholarship. Um, most of the time, this is going to require somebody sustaining a serious injury or having a pattern of injuries. But I'm sure you could point to at least a couple guys on any given roster that would qualify for this any given year. Um, and then the last, the last option, you could, you know, you can't force somebody to transfer from your program, but you could strongly urge them to do that. Um, and I think that's a, a lot of what you see in in the spring too. Is guys a either realizing that they are not going to have a role, or b coaches telling them just flat out that they're not going to have a role. So you might as well look elsewhere. The combination of all of these options basically means no team is really ever going to be over the scholarship limit. Very rarely, if ever, are you going to run into that because teams do have options to get below it. Obviously, the NCAA wants to, like, they want to give you options because they don't want you to break the scholarship limit. So um, that's that's how you would management manage it come August if if you had to. Uh, another roster management question from Beaver Walk-On, uh, again, at the lodge at beaverblitz.com. With NIL, now walk-ons could have all the benefits that scholarship players do. This is one of the problems with the way NI, or with NIL the way it's set up right now. With this in mind, my question is, is there a limit in the total number of players that can be on the football team? I know there's a limit of 85 scholarship players. But with NIL, couldn't you have an unlimited number of players that are basically getting their expenses paid for? So the question here is, is there a roster limit in general in addition to the 85 scholarship limit? And the answer to that is, is yes. And I'll get to that in a second. Uh, but the first part of the question outlines, quote, one of the problems with NIL in that walk-ons could have all the benefits that scholarship players do. And, and frankly, I don't see that being a problem. I, I think... That's one of the good things about NIL is that it gives opportunities to people who may not otherwise have them. Uh, your walk-ons could effectively have some of their school paid for by boosters or by, you know, fans. Obviously, it has to go through the 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 legal channels here in NIL. But I mean, you see it at, at programs like I believe it was BYU that basically gave all of their walk-ons um, a few thousand dollars, and I I, I think that's everything that's great about NIL. Um, so it's it's an interesting pers perspective. I know that there are conflicting standpoints on the way NIL operates, but I do think that that is, is actually a, um, I, I think that's an upside of NIL, NIL rather than, uh, than a problem with it. But to the question about roster size, this is an easy one. Um, you have a limit of 105 student athletes on your roster before classes or games start. Uh, I, I believe it's whichever of those comes first, um, but I, I'm not entirely sure. But basically until the end of August, um, basically in, until you get through fall camp, you can have 105 on your roster. Um, then it goes up to 125 once the season starts. So you could have as many as 45 walk-ons on your team. I, I don't think Oregon State has carried 40 walk-ons. Um, in the past, but, but yeah, 105, uh, in, in the summer and then 125 in the season. Mr. G gray asks, uh, does OSU have, or has, has it ever had a program where schools can sign up 
K through eight students to attend games for free and get more people in the seats? If not, do you think it could grow the younger fan base? Uh, I would say, so not currently, Oregon State doesn't currently have a program like this. And I can't speak for what may have existed in the past, uh, but another poster in the lodge suggested that there was a program uh, like this about 30 to 40 years ago. So obviously it's been a long time. I can't think of anything like that recently. I do think it would have been a great way to get people in the stands over the last decade when attendance has been way down. Um, obviously, you know, hand out free students or hand out free tickets to, to, to kids in the local area, grow your young fan base. Um, I think it helps with enrollment too. You know, if you have local elementary middle schoolers going to your football games, they're probably more likely to go to your university in about five to 10 years. Um, but I think in the future now, you have to see how downsizing at Research Stadium impacts attendance. Um, we saw it last year. Obviously, Oregon State sold out every game because it had, what, 27,000 seats available. Well, when you move up to 37,000, are you still selling out? Because if you are, you probably don't have room for one of these programs. Um, but the fact that it's been so long since they've done it anyways, I don't even know if it's on the table. Uh, Reeser B of 23 asks another fun question. What event would you like to see Oregon State achieve in the next five to 10 years? And there's five options here. This is a good one. Uh, if you're watching live on YouTube, maybe you could uh, chime in in the chat as well with, with which one of these five you would like to see. Uh, so number one, a soccer national championship. Uh, number two, men's basketball final four appearance. Number three, women's basketball final four appearance. Number four, um, a football, a college football playoff appearance for the Beavers. And then number five is wrestling being in the top five. So uh, for me, the, the answer is easy. It's a college football playoff appearance. It generates the most revenue, generates the most visibility for your program and university. The final four is great. You know, obviously there's tons of eyeballs on the final four. Um, probably close to as many as the college football playoff. Obviously I don't have the numbers in front of me, but financially nothing generates revenue like the college football playoff. Uh, this is great for Oregon state. It's great for the PAC 12. Um, plus I, I, you know, I think a soccer national championship, I, I know Terry boss is moving on uh, from coaching the men's program, but, but what he's done to build that up, like, who knows? Maybe you see a soccer national championship anyway. Women's basketball, I think, with Scott Ruick, could get back to the Final Four. Obviously, he's uh, he's made these deep tournament runs in the past. And wrestling with the way it's looking recently, I, I think it could breach the, the top five anyway. So if I had to pick one from that, that list that I was just going to manifest, it would be Oregon State and the college football player for all of those reasons. Um, and it does look like the YouTube chat uh, agrees with that as well. Our last question from the Lodge comes from Elijah Klein 97. Uh, welcome to Beaver Blitz, by the way. Uh, Elijah is one of our new members. Um, so here's an example of, of somebody joining and then asking a question in the Lodge, getting priority here. Um, Elijah asks, what are your personal thoughts on Research Stadium being around 35,000 in capacity once the renovation is done? To me, this feels like a step backwards given all the money and time that we have spent in the last 20 years to bring the capacity up. When Oregon State was having success in the 2000s, we didn't struggle to draw 40,000 or more. What say you? Does 35,000 seem like the right number? So I understand the disappointment in a capacity reduction. I do. Um, you know, for, for so long, we saw stadiums expanding and programs 
trying to get more fans in the stands. And and they're not telling people don't come to the games. They're not trying to get less people, uh, fewer people in the stands. But they're, you're seeing programs across the country reduce capacity. And obviously Oregon State's going to be the next to do it. Um, it's not going to be dramatic, but it, it will be noticeable. Research Stadium was at 45,000 a couple of years ago. It dropped down to, I think, 43 uh, with the the north end zone renovation. And then now it's it's projected to end up around 37,000, 38,000 uh, once the completing Research Stadium project is done. So the uh, the, the quote-unquote right-sizing project, uh, as, as Scott Barnes likes to call it, is is just that you're, you're finding the right size to maximize supply and demand of tickets while maximizing revenue that you can generate from your premium seating. That's the rationale behind it. Like it or not, that's the direction that not only college sports, college football uh, is, is heading, but college basketball, professional sports, you know, new major league stadiums are not 60,000 seat stadiums anymore. By and large, um, but again, Oregon State's not a Nebraska. It's not an LSU. It's not even a Washington where you're going to get sixty plus thousand fans in your stadium, even for a, for a big game like when Oregon comes to town. Um, there's just not enough fans to warrant a fifty thousand seat stadium in today's day and age at Oregon State. So expanding makes no sense. Staying where you've been at in the low 40s could make sense given that your team is performing better you have shown that you can sell out a 45,000 seat stadium within the last 15 years so i see why that could be attractive um but again i I think financially just makes too much sense to right size because you can uh, again add in the premium seats um it's not like you know, square footage wise in the stadium, it's going to be a whole lot smaller. It's just that premium seating takes up more space and takes away opportunities to put bleachers in, you know? Um, so I think it makes too much sense to, to right size as, as Scott Barnes calls it, um, because you're going to generate more revenue from your premium seating. Um, you're going to maximize the demand versus supply. Um, I, you know, I, I think 40,000 is better than 35,000 again, to the point that, Oregon State has proven that it can put that many fans in a stadium when the team is playing well. Um, but I, I, I think the actual number will come out to be somewhere between 35 and 40 anyway. So um, clearly they did their research. I, I think they're spot on with this number. Uh, okay, let's move to Twitter now. There's only a few questions here. Um, well, actually, there's there's a handful of questions. They only come from three users, um, but we'll highlight these. Uh, talk a couple of spring sports and then get out of here. So moving to Twitter, PM asks, could Oregon State potentially have the most electric punt and kick return team in the nation with speedsters like Silas Bolden, Anthony Gould, and presumably Zachary Card getting some run? Is this the next coming of the Sammy Strader era? So I say yes. In fact, I would argue that Oregon State had the most electric return team in the country last year. Anthony Gould was a first-team All-American, basically consensus first-team All-American uh, kick returner. Well, he was the punt returner, but but most of these publications kind of lumped them into one. Oregon State swept the All-Conference team. You had uh, Anthony Gould on the first team and Silas Bolden on the second team. 
You bring both of those guys back and add Zachary Card, who proved at the Beaver Combine a couple short weeks ago that he's the fastest player on the team already as a true freshman who should still be in high school. Uh, you have plenty of options there. And I think you can make a lot of noise in the return game. Um, obviously, a lot of it comes down to your, you know, your blocking teams and uh, and and what you're getting there. You know, the athletes that you have there. Oregon State obviously is is losing quite a few um, up, upperclassmen who have been on special teams for a while, but they bring a bunch back. I don't think you see a drop off there either. So, you know, maybe they take a slight step backward. Maybe last year was a little fluky with the touchdowns on the returns, but. I, I don't think so. I mean, Bolden and Gould are some of the fastest players Oregon State's ever had. Um, so I think, yes, Oregon State should have one of the most electric return teams in the nation, if not the most, because I think they already did last year. Uh, we move now to questions from Max Casa. There's four questions here, so I'll kind of I'll, I'll go through them quickly. Um, any idea what the format of the spring game will take? Uh, yes. So... Oregon State on social media is not even calling it the spring game. They're calling it the spring showcase, which tells you all you need to know. Uh, Oregon State hasn't done a traditional spring game format since Jonathan Smith took over. So it'll almost certainly be like recent years where you see a couple of position group drills to start and warm up, some live action, maybe some seven on seven, um, definitely a little bit of 11 on 11, and then probably a decent amount of red zone work as well. So, um, you know, they'll probably keep score in the, in the, the red zone situations but other than that uh, this is just going to be a glorified practice who do you predict will be the star of the spring football game so last year it was silas bolden he had the two touchdowns if i'm going to pick somebody to be the mvp of the spring game three weeks in advance uh, they have to fit a couple of criteria for me so has to be a skill position player because we're probably not picking a lineman has to not be a veteran because these guys don't practice a ton in the spring anyway. Um, like Damian Martinez is probably not going to be the spring game MVP just because I don't think he's going to run as much as some of the other guys. Um, and I think they have to be involved in the passing game too, because you frankly just don't see a whole lot of running plays in the spring anyways. Um, so th th really the only one that fits all of these categories in my mind right now is Zachary Card, who I just highlighted as the fastest player on the team. Um, a, a wide receiver who has made a bunch of plays and stood out among the rest already, um, or one of the defensive backs, Skylar Thomas, Jaden Robinson, or Tyrese Ivy. These guys are all competing for a job. Um, uh, Thomas and Robinson guys who have been on campus before, but uh, are, are now breaking into the starting group. Um, so they're running quite a bit in the spring. Um if, if you see one of those guys come down with an interception or two in the spring game, you could make a case for them to, to be the MVP. So I think they're a solid pick as well. But I guess right now I would probably lean Zachary Card. Uh, another question from Max. What can you say about the other Canadian basketball signee? Uh, so this, I assume, is referring to Thomas and Dong, the 6'10 forward from Montreal. Um, Casey Abekwe came in last year from Canada. So I assume this is about Thomas, who will come in in the next... Um, this next wave of, of signees here. So Thomas and Dong played in the FIBA U18 Americas Championship for Team Canada with Casey Abekwe last year. He averaged 6.2 points per game, 5.2 rebounds per game, 
in the tournament had two double digit scoring performances. So, I mean, it's good numbers on the international stage, albeit in a U18 setting. Uh, he played in the NBA Academy games. He's been working with NBA Academy recently, uh, played in the 22 2022 NBA Academy games and posted a double double there. So, uh, you know, playing against obviously high level competition on these circuits uh, and putting up good numbers there. Uh, that's that's good production from a guy coming in from the international ranks. Wayne Tinkle says uh, he's a versatile player. He's very athletic, has great basketball IQ. Um, you know, it could just be coach speak talking about a signee. Obviously, you don't know how that translates to on court success. But um, when you hear six foot ten and versatile, when you hear six foot ten and athletic, like this is something that Oregon State doesn't always get. Um, if Oregon State has a six foot ten player, usually they're playing in the paint, back to basket, posting up, and and not really stretching the floor a whole lot. So I'll be honest, I haven't seen any Thomas and Dong film. Uh, but I bet if I went and watched it and saw him stretching the floor, I would be pretty excited about that because, like I said, Oregon State doesn't get that very often. Uh, and then lastly from Max, uh, and we have just three questions left here, uh, how many games does the baseball team have to win to make the playoffs? I think if Oregon State's going to make the NCAA baseball tournament as an at-large from the Pac-12, it's probably got to win somewhere in the low to mid-30s. Um, more likely than not, if Oregon State makes a tournament this year, it's going to be a three-seed uh, just some of the losses that's compiled recently, I, I think we'll hold it back from from being a two unless it goes on a, a pretty solid run in the second half of the season, which entirely possible. It's a young team. It's going to take a little bit of time to gel. Um, these slumps are going to happen. I'm not writing off Oregon State landing a two seed. I don't think Oregon State will host. Um, but I think if, if the Beavers get into the low to mid 30s, yeah, I mean, that's a tournament team. That's always a tournament team, essentially, from a power conference. So Oregon State right now, a third of the way through Pac-12 play, stands at 15-9 and nine overall. If you extrapolate that win percentage out uh, through, through the rest of the season, it comes out to about 35 wins. That's enough. That will get you in the tournament. You'll be a, at least a three-seed, borderline two-seed. If, if you win 35 games in the Pac-12. Uh, depends on who you beat and who you lose to, obviously. Um, but winning 35 games in a power conference, you're probably going to have a decent RPI. You're going to be in the tournament. Um, obviously, there are exceptions. You're not guaranteed. But I think if Oregon State wins 35 games, if it keeps up its current pace, it will be in the tournament um, relatively safely. Could be one of could be one of the last power you know, power conference teams in. Uh, but I don't think there will be too much question whether they're in or not. Okay, last questions here on Twitter. Uh, these two come from Sean Ketzdever. These are back to football. Uh, Sean asks, how is DJU doing with learning the offense? DJ Uyunglele, I think, is an interesting case of somebody coming in as a transfer because, as we learned when we spoke with him uh, after practice number five, he mentioned that he had already been studying Oregon State's offense before he even committed, before he even reached out to the program. He had watched all of Oregon State's games and had kind of digested the offense. So he knew the basic principles of it. Obviously, he didn't have a playbook in his hands, uh, but he has had a playbook in his hands for the last, what, almost three months now. Um, so he's learning 
I mean, he's learned quite a bit. Now it's just a matter of putting it into practice. Um, you still see him working on timing with receivers. You see overthrows and underthrows. That's going to come with more time with the guys uh, in controlled practice settings. But I think I, I think the summer months are going to be huge, both for DJ and for Aiden Childs in taking the next step from, okay, I'm introducing myself into the offense to, okay, now I'm comfortable with it. Sometimes it can take a little bit longer for quarterbacks just because they have so much more that they have on their plate. Uh, but DJ is a guy who has been a medium to high level starter at one of the national powerhouses in the country for multiple years. Um, I have no doubt he will pick up the offense very quickly over the next couple of months. And lastly, is Damian Martinez a top back in the nation this season? Skill wise? Yeah, sure. Like, I mean, I, Damian Martinez was one of the best freshman running backs in the country last year. I don't see why that can't translate into being one of the best sophomores or uh, just one of the best running backs outright. I just don't think the numbers will be there. You know, he's probably not going to be on any major award semifinal lists in October and November just because I think he's going to have to split production too much with a group that now goes five deep. Um, I mean, shoot, when you think about Trey Lowe and Isaiah Newell as your fourth and fifth options. Like those are guys who are probably going to see the field a little bit. And if your group is going five deep, um, your, your featured back might cap out in the low twenties um, in, in touches in a game. That's probably not going to give you the production to get a whole lot of national headlines, but skill set wise. Yeah. And the fact that he's going to be running behind one of the best offensive lines in the country for another year running. Like, yeah, I, I think Damian Martinez probably will be one of the better running backs, not only in the Pac-12, but but probably nationally, just based off of what he did as a true freshman. Um, I'm going to peruse the YouTube chat here just a little bit to see if any questions came in while we were running. Uh, Tannis asks, off-topic question on a scale of 1 to 10, how tired are you with the snow? Um, so... The last time we got snow up here in Portland, what, earlier in the month, end of February, like I was pretty excited. I, I'm a big snow guy. So in the winter, when we get that rare couple of inches in the Portland area, I'm I'm pretty fired up. When I wake up to snow on March 25th, not as excited. Uh, that's the time of year where I am more than ready for spring to get rolling. So on the scale of one to 10, I'd say eight. Um, just give me spring. Let's let's get the sun out. I'm, I'm tired of looking outside and seeing clouds and rain and, and wind and, and being at baseball games, needing to be bundled up indoors in the press box because one window is open. Um, yeah, let's let's move on to spring already. Uh, looking for other questions here in the YouTube chat. Is uh, it's a George Klyovkov question at the Pac-12 level from Roger Villeneuve? Uh, Villan, probably butchering your last name there. Vill I would say Villanueva, Villeneuve, Villeneuve. I don't. Know. Sorry. Uh, is George Klyovkov strike two among Pac-12 conference commissioners? What is going on with that and realignment? Got to get San Diego State and SMU or Rice or Tulane. Um, I think. Man, we could have a whole episode talking about Pac-12, but like the pressure put on the conference, I think some of it's fair, some of it's not. Um, 
with the way the other conferences have realigned and with the way that other power teams and, and power programs have moved, there is legitimate pressure on the Pac-12 to get a deal done just because it is close to being left behind. Um, but in terms of like the necessity to get a deal done right now, as far as like just strictly locking in your media rights deal, the only pressure that exists on that front is that your programs and you know your your member institutions just might say hey like let's get something done or we're going to look elsewhere you know put the pressure on you in that way um i don't i don't want to ramble too much i think the pac-12 needs to move quickly now because there is pressure internally and externally um but getting sdsu yeah san diego state strike while the iron's hot right like stock on the aztecs has never been higher there should be an invitation on their athletic director's desk yesterday. Um, who you bring in to pair with them, I don't know. You're you're not going to go to the Pac-11, so you're going to find somebody to bring in with them. Whether it's SMU, whether it's UNLV or Fresno State, I don't know. But San Diego State's a home run. Uh, I'll look for maybe one or two more questions here. Uh, yeah, seems like San Diego State's a, a pretty popular Pac-12 edition in the, in the YouTube chat. Um, I'm not seeing a whole lot here. So in that case, I'll highlight uh, a couple of other spring sports and then we'll get out of here. We're going to be a lot closer to an hour than I thought. Um, so that's good. I'm, I'm getting a little tired of talking here, so we'll move quick through this. But uh, gymnastics is the lone winter sport at Oregon State that is still rolling. Uh, we said on the last pod that they were going to be heading to regionals on Friday. Incorrectly spoke on that. They're actually heading to regionals this coming Friday. Uh, so what, I think that's uh, the 31st, March 31st, April 1st, something like that. But uh, Oregon State Gymnastics heading to the Denver Regional this Friday, highlighted by, of course, Jade Carey, who is now a two-time Pac-12 Gymnast of the Year and who took home maximum All-American honors over the last week. Um, not enough good things can be said about what Jade Carey has done for this gymnastics program, for this athletic department. Um, we hope to see Jade have immense success at regionals and to take Oregon State to the promised land in the NCAA postseason. Talked a bunch about baseball earlier. Uh, didn't highlight the upcoming schedule. Oregon State heads to Seattle University at 2 p.m. on Wednesday. Um, I didn't ask why the game is starting at 2 p.m. My suspicion is that Seattle might not have lights at its facility. That's the only reason I could think of for a, an afternoon game on a Wednesday. Um, but not entirely sure on that. The Beavers will stay in Seattle for the weekend for a Friday through Sunday three-game Pac-12 series at the University of Washington. It's going to be wet, windy, and cold at Husky Ballpark, but what's new? I think if you're measuring success this weekend for Oregon State, taking two of three at Husky Ballpark with a midweek win is about as good as it gets. Um, I don't think Oregon State can afford to lose very many, if any, Pac-12 series from this point forward. Uh, but going on the road to a, a middle-of-the-road Pac-12 team in Washington and getting a series win, um, you'll take that in any season. So uh, I think that's how you measure success this week. Oregon State softball hosts Oregon in a three-game rivalry series Friday through Sunday. 
The Beavers were swept at Stanford last weekend. It's been a rough go of it for the softball team this year. Expectations obviously were high coming off of the Women's College World Series appearance last year. It hasn't quite panned out this year, um, but maybe they can get something rolling against a ranked opponent in Oregon at Kelly Field this weekend. Uh, to the Olympic sports now, women's outdoor track and field season started last week. We highlighted their success uh, in the first meet of the season. They're heading to the Texas Relays in Austin on Wednesday, uh, and they're coming off another very strong showing last weekend. They took multiple first-place finishes, 13 top three finishes last week at the Willamette Invitational. Rowing is back in action on the men's and women's side. Their spring seasons got underway uh, over the weekend. The men's team uh, won all four races at Gonzaga in a duel there in central Washington. Uh, men's rowing, uh, again, back in action. Um, they head to Stanford this weekend. Women's rowing hosted, uh, I believe it was four universities at Dexter Lake down near Eugene over the weekend, won four of five races there. And the women have an exhibition at Sacramento State on Saturday. Lastly, golf. Men's golf is at the Duck Invitational today on Monday, March 27th. And tomorrow, women's golf returns to action next week at the Silverado Showdown in Napa, California. That is your whip around of Oregon State Spring Sports on Monday, March 27th. Students are in, uh, students are enjoying spring break. If you're a student, you're listening. Hope your finals went well. Um, gear up for spring term. It's the best time of year at Oregon State. Um, I guess football season might might contend for that too. But as as far as you know, that good weather coming in, uh, everything's in bloom on campus. It's a great time to be in Corvallis. That's going to do it for us here on this uh, the spring break mail uh, spring break mailbag episode of the damn podcast. We got pretty close to an hour. Um, so shout out to, um, to my vocal cords for holding, holding on through it. I think this is just about the longest I've gone solo, but we'll get Angie in here before too long. She's on a much needed break for spring break. Um, but we hope you'll join us when, when she comes back until then you can follow me on Twitter at Carter Baines, and we'll talk to you when Angie gets back from spring break for another episode of the damn podcast. (laughs) 